Good morning. So my wife has this phrase that she uses sometimes to describe me, um, to, to my face. Um, she will say, she will go, oh, Mario, you are either a one or a four. And the, she's describing my personality. You know how there are some people that are extreme people and some people that are more moderate people, right? Some people are black and white people, and it's like it's either this or it's this, but it's nothing in between. And then there are other people that are very gray people, right? There are some people who are like, go big or go home. And then there are some people that kind of do things half-hearted, right? There are some of us that I can give you like 100% of my effort and attention and focus, or I could give you 0%, but those are the only two options that I have. And then there are some people that are like, no, I am perfectly capable of putting 50% of my effort into something, right? There are different types of people. And so you may be able to figure out already which one I am because my wife will go, oh, Mario, you are either a one or a four. And it is a, it's a metaphor, but it's from a real thing in our life. Um, it's from the air conditioning in our car. Uh, and she realized there was something about the way I handled the air conditioning in the car that was symbolic of my whole life. So early on in our marriage, as we were driving around, um, she noticed that, and I, maybe you got, I don't know how your air conditioning is in your car, but every car we've owned pretty much has had a knob on it that you can make the air conditioning more powerful or less powerful. And the least powerful setting is, is labeled one and the most powerful setting is labeled four. And so she noticed um, early on in our marriage, whenever she was driving, like whenever I was driving the car and in control of the air conditioning, that I only ever used setting one and setting four, you know? And she was like, I don't understand why is this? Why is it always only one or four? And I, which, I, that's a dumb question, isn't it? Like, I'm either, I'm either hot or I'm not. Like, I, I don't understand what the two and the three are there for. I don't. I don't understand you people that are like, well, I'm sort of kind of hot. Like, kind of hot? I've never been kind of hot in my whole life. I don't, I don't see why the two and three are there. And so she will, um, she will use that as, a, as sort of a metaphor for the way I do everything in my whole life. And I was reminded of that, like I was reminded of that aspect of my personality as I was preparing my sermon this week, because we are now in spending someone else's money part eight we have been topic, talking about this topic of money. Now this is our eighth week. My plan is for next week to be the final week. Nine weeks talking about money. And so if you are someone who attends this church and you were attending this church, say, two months ago, I could imagine that you might say, like, oh, yeah, I go to Good News Church. You know, uh, Mario's a preacher. And, um, and he hardly ever talks about money, right? You remember, remember when you used to say that? Um, and so this is interesting. So that's true. I really do. I hardly ever talk about money. But when I do... I go all out and talk about it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So we have two sermons left in this series. We so far have covered that it is all God's money, that everything in the world belongs to him, and everything that you call yours is actually his, and it's all God's money. <clears throat> we talked about using money to make a difference in eternity, that we should use money here and now to make a difference in forever. We've talked about church giving. We've talked about giving to the poor. We've talked about saving for the future. We've talked about debt. We've talked about spending. And now we come to the final two weeks of the series. And the last two topics I'd like for us to cover is contentment and financial stress. Contentment this week, and if the Lord wills, financial stress next week. And so today, if, as we look at the topic of contentment, I wanted to start off with a pretty simple sentence. Contentment is a relevant issue in our lives because discontentment exists, okay? Pretty simple, right? That contentment is a relevant issue. Like, I knew that when I was preaching this, there would be some of you here that were already interested in it, that, oh, I, I want to know about what the Bible has to say about contentment. I would like to hear a sermon on contentment. Why is that? Why are we naturally interested in this topic? And it's because discontentment is a thing. 
So let's start with talking about the problem of discontentment. This is the definition that I'm going to be using for discontentment. Definition of discontentment is not being satisfied with what God has provided for us. Discontentment is not being satisfied with what God has provided for us. And I've definitely experienced it. If I remember correctly, I think there was a time where I was jealous of a mannequin. I was there in the mall, and, you know, the mannequins are all in shape. Like, they're all, they all are in shape, and they don't ever have to work out. And they have these cool clothes on, and they're expensive clothes, and they all match. The whole outfit matches. And, I, I, and there were times where I'd just look over and be like, man, like, I wish I looked like that, you know? I wish I were like him. And then it dawns on you like, whoa, I am jealous of a plastic man with no face, right? <laughs> I remember when I was in college and I was comparing my laptop to the other people in my class's laptops. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but when I was in college, we would go um, into the room and the professor would give lectures and we had like a table in front of us or a desk in front of us that we were able to bring out our laptops and we could take notes and, and you know, type up what the professor was lecturing on. This was a long time ago when you could go to college in person. It was amazing. Okay, like you could actually be in the same room with your college professor. It was fantastic. And so, um, so I would sit there and I would take notes on my laptop. And I guess at this point in history, like at this point in my life, this was when, okay, I had kind of a, a somewhat older laptop, but this is back when they made those laptops. Do you remember when laptops were really like thick right? Very different than the ones now. They, could, they was like the size of a pizza box, and you would like, it would creak when you opened it, okay, and then you would type, and so this was right around the time where that, like those were going out, and so I had this like, you know, thick, giant laptop, and then I looked at the person next to me in class, and this was right around the time that Apple was inventing the really thin laptops. They're all thin now, but back then, Apple was the only one. So the guy next, so here I am with my like Chicago deep dish laptop, <laughs> And I look over, and this other guy has this like orange and white, looks like some sort of alien technology, you know, thin, sleek laptop. And as I'm like comparing what I have and looking at what he has, and I'm like, wow, that is cool, not cool, that's cool. And I'm, you know, and I'm so I'm just sitting there going, man, what he has is so much cooler than mine. You know, and then you start to be insecure about, well, you know, but mine's not good enough and his is better. In fact, I'm noticing him and I'm noticing his laptop and then I'm thinking it's maybe that maybe he's noticing me in my laptop. Maybe he's judging me right now. Look at him with that giant thing or that thing. It looks like a, you know, a personal pan stack of whatever. You know, and he's sitting there. I'm thinking maybe he's judging me and, I, and I'm sitting there looking over at him and, and thinking about, and, and, and at some point I think across my mind, I'm going, like, well, I could be, I could be cool like that. Right? Like, I could get a laptop like his. It's not like I couldn't do it. Right? I've been saving up my money. I could spend several thousand dollars and get this sleek thing and be as cool as him. And I think it even crossed my mind, like, maybe I will. Maybe I'll just go out and I'll just get, I'll be cool like the other people. I don't have to be this big old creaking thing. I can have a really awesome thing like him. I could go buy it. And then hopefully in those moments, like, common sense hits and you realize, like, wait a minute, Mario, you want to go buy something you don't need to impress someone you don't know right? Like the thing that I had did the job. It was good enough. And I'm sitting there going, well, I want to look cool like this guy. I didn't even know his name. I wanted to spend thousands of dollars to impress a person that I never even saw again in my life, right? Isn't it crazy when those kinds of feelings come over us? It's irrational sometimes. I saw an SUV commercial one time and they, you know, show the, whatever, the footage of the SUV, but then at the end of the commercial, they have this slogan. This was the slogan, and they say it in a very cool commercial voice. They go, <clears throat> it shows the SUV and whatever the name of it was, and then it says, it's not more than you need, it's just more than you're used to. And I thought about it, 
And I thought to myself, that's not true, right? Like if you have gotten used to getting less than you need, you would be dead, right? That's what a need is. Wow, I've been getting by on less than I need. I'm going to finally get the SUV I need. How have I been surviving without this SUV that I need all these years? But we don't think about it rationally. We just watch and go, whoa, I've been getting less than I need, and I need that SUV. And one of the worst things about discontentment is that it is like being in a race where the finish line keeps moving. Have you noticed that? Especially in this country, maybe it's all over the world this way, but you think, well, I just need to earn a little more, and I just need to buy another one, and if I could just have the house, or if I could just have the car, if I could just have the whatever, then I'd be fine. And what happens to a lot of us is we work really hard, and we get it. And then what happens? Yeah, we we need more. The finish line is as far away as it was, and we, we thought if I could just get that, I'd be fine, but by the time we got there, the finish line was just as far away. But we thought, no, no, what I'll do is I'll just earn a little more, and I'll buy a little more. And so we worked harder, and we worked harder, and we did a little more, and, and we still didn't finish. We didn't go, ah, contentment, I finally reached it. No, it was just as far away as it was when we started. And so then some of us went and bought some more stuff, and worked really hard, and earned some more stuff. And the finish line just keeps moving. So I heard a pastor illustrate it this way. What would have satisfied you? He said something like this. What would have satisfied you when you were eight years old? Like, we're talking about money. Like, what is the amount of money? Just think back to when you were eight years old. What is the amount of money that would have been, like, enough? It would have been more than enough. Like, well, it would be so great if I had that amount of money. Can you remember what you thought when you were eight years old? Okay, I'm sure it's a different number for all of us, but, but it was something, right? In fact, it's probably something that you now have, isn't it? Right? When you were eight years old, you thought something like, whoa, if I had $100, whoa, life would be so good if I just had $100, wouldn't it? And then what's weird is you got older and you got $100, right? And you wanted more. Isn't that weird? One day you were, let's say, 16 years old. You just fast forward a little bit. One day you were 16 years old. Probably by the time you were 16 years old, you had $100. But you, didn't, you weren't satisfied with $100 then, were you? No. What did you want when you were 16 years old? What, did, what was the thing that you thought, if I had this, I would be content? If only I had my own car. Oh, I remember that when I was 16. Oh, if I could just have my own car, my life would be so good if I just got my own car. And so I am now 42 years old, and guess what? I have my own car. (laughs) And I bet you it would be so weird for 16-year-old Mario, if he could get into a time machine and come forward to talk to 42-year-old Mario and go, like, do you experience discontent? And I would go, yes. And he'd go, but you have a car. You can drive anywhere you want, whenever you want. How could you be discontent, right? And now 42-year-old Mario would be like, yeah, sorry, buddy. It takes me, you need more than that. Isn't that weird that the finish line keeps moving? You could do this with any age in your life. There are lots of you in this room that um, when you were in your 20s, there was a certain amount of money that you thought, if I had that amount of income, or if I had that kind of house, or if I had that kind of wealth, it would be enough. And for some of you, you, in your 30s and in your 40s, you reached that level of wealth, that when you were in your 20s, you're like, man, that would be awesome. you're, You're there, and it's not enough. right? You're still feeling like you need more. And then there are some of you that are even older than that. There are some of you that are in your 50s and 60s. And the amount of wealth that you'd kind of dreamed about in your 30s and 40s, you now have. And it's not enough. 
It just seems like we're all in this race and we're running and we're running and it's tiring and then someone says, around the next corner is satisfaction. Just keep running a little farther. Contentment is right around the corner. And then we get around the corner and it's not there. But there's a little man there who says, it's around the next corner. Keep running. And we go, okay, and we keep running. We earn a little more and we try a little harder and, and we buy some more stuff and we get some more things and we arrange some things and we, and we get around the next corner and it's not there. Satisfaction's not there. But there's a little man there that says, it's around the next corner. You just need to buy some more things and you just need to get more wealth. And you, so we keep running and we keep running and we go around the next corner and it's not there. But there's a little guy there that says, no, for real this time. It's really around the next corner. I want to read you a, a quote from this book. The this, uh, title of this book is The Treasure Principle. It is a fantastic book. It is one of my favorite books, maybe in my top five of all time. It's uh, written by Randy Alcorn. And if you, I, you, can just, you can go on Amazon and order one. It's not a very expensive book. But I highly, would, I highly recommend this book. I'm going to read to you from page 56 of the book. Randy Alcorn says this. He says, As the wealthiest man on earth, Solomon learned that affluence didn't satisfy. Let me pause and just give you some context. The Solomon that he's referring to here is King Solomon of Israel. He lived approximately 3,000 years ago, and Solomon reigned in Israel during the time when Israel was its most successful, when Israel was like the richest and like doing the best that it ever did. It was under Solomon. As the wealthiest man on earth, Solomon learned that affluence didn't satisfy. All it did was give him greater opportunity to chase more mirages. People... People tend to run out of money before mirages, so they cling to the myth that things they can't afford will satisfy them. Solomon's money never ran out. He tried everything, saying, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Solomon's conclusion, and now here's a quote from the book of Ecclesiastes. Quote, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. End quote. Back to Randy Alcorn here. Why do we keep getting fooled? Because our hearts yearn for treasure here and now. We are tempted to imagine that the earthly treasures that we see around us are the genuine items rather than mere shadows of the real treasures. And he uses this idea of chasing mirages, but I think it's the same thing I'm trying to explain to you, that it's like we keep getting promised that happiness is around the corner, and unless we can get our minds fixed by Jesus, it will always be around the next corner, and it will never be around the next corner. And it is an exhausting and depressing game that we are playing. And the question is this, can we stop? Can we stop playing the game? Can we stop running this race? Could we find contentment some other way? So for that, I want to share with you two Bible passages this morning. I want to share with you some of the words of John the Baptist, and I want to share with you some of the words of the Apostle Paul. And so if you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn first, we'll do it in that order, John the Baptist, then Paul. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading in verse 7. This is John the Baptist speaking to the crowds. I'm just going to start reading. I'll explain it as I go. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him. So the he there is John the Baptist. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Um, he was not a feel-good preacher, right? He was, not a, he was not a gentle man. He looks at these people, he calls them snakes to their face, and he is letting them know, I think, based on what he says here, like, you all are sinful people. You are wicked people. You are not living life the way that you ought to. You're a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? There is a wrath of God that's coming for you sinners. Who warned you? Why are you here? You people are sinful. And then look what he says, next verse, verse 8. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. You are sinful, you're going in the wrong direction, you need to repent. And we've talked about in this series already what repentance is, right? Do you remember? It's turning around and going the other way. John the Baptist was saying, turn from your ways and turn toward God and his ways, right? You need to produce fruit consistent with repentance. What comes out of your life, like the product of you, needs to be consistent with someone who has turned from their ways and turned toward God's ways. And then he says, and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. He was speaking in a very relevant way to his crowd. Probably this, this idea probably doesn't matter as much to you as it would have to them. But in, in ancient Israel at this point, that would have been a temptation of theirs. That when he says you need to repent, you need to produce fruit consistent with repentance. He's saying, and, and you should not be someone who sits there and thinks, I'm one of God's chosen people. Abraham is my great, 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 great grandfather. So I'm fine. Like I'm automatically in. He's saying that is not how it works. Do not assume that because Abraham is your great-great-great-great-grandfather that you're just fine. Oh, I don't need to repent. That is not how it works. In fact, what's the next verse? He says, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you... Oh, no, I guess it's right on there. Sorry. No, go to the last verse. Um, <clears throat> we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And then he says, next verse, even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees, which is a metaphor, right? They're the trees. He's saying, don't think that you're just, oh, I'm one of the chosen people. Like, I was just sort of born into the family of people that God loves, and I don't need to worry about repentance. No, you need to repent. You need to realize God's wrath is coming. The axe is ready to strike at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree, he's talking about people though, right? Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. God's wrath is coming on you. you. You are a brood of vipers. You're sinful in the ways that you live. You need to turn from the ways you live toward the ways of God, or else there is wrath coming for you like a tree being thrown into fire. And I don't know, when he tells them every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown to the fire, I don't know if he was like specifically thinking of and teaching on hell at that point, or if he was just kind of talking about God's wrath generally and, and, and sort of comparing it to a tree being thrown into a fire. But I don't know that it really matters because that's the idea behind this. Like when you look at what the rest of the Bible says, that is, that is true. That you, if you are someone, and this is very important to know. In fact, people don't say this a whole lot anymore. If you are someone who decides, I'm going to live my life my way, like I'm going to reject God, I am not going to bend the knee to Jesus Christ, I'm going to live my life my own way. There's the creator and whatever he wants, and there's my life and whatever I want. And if you decide to not repent and turn to his way, instead remain in your own way, you will die and go to hell. Like that's, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. And I think that that kind of thing is what John the Baptist was concerned about. So he tells them, that's what's coming. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So then the people say back to him, this is verse 10, what then should we do, right? How do we repent? You're telling us we need to produce fruit with repentance. There's a certain kind of life that we should live in order to follow God or in order to show that we're following God or in order to do the right thing. So what is it? How do we produce fruit consistent with repentance? How do we repent? How do we, what then should we do? And I want you to notice what John the Baptist says next is very interesting. 
Every, he, talks, he says multiple things in the next few sentences, and everything that he brings up is financial. They ask about repentance, and every answer he gives is about money. So verse 11, this is in reaction to what should we do. Verse 11, he replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. They said, how do we repent? How do we live according to God's ways, right? And he said, be generous, stop hoarding, give your stuff away, look out for others. Then, next verse, verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? Same question, right? Here's his answer. He told them, don't collect any more than you have been authorized. Don't collect any more what? Money, right? Yeah. So the first group of people come up and say, what do we do? You're talking about repentance. What do we do? And he said, be generous. Next group of people come up and say, what do we do? And he says, quit stealing. Quit cheating people. Then another group of people comes up. Verse 14. Some soldiers also questioned him. What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by... Don't, don't take what? Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. So it's just interesting to me that John the Baptist is preaching repentance and he's telling the people to repent. And they say to him, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? And his response is, change the way you handle your money, change the way you handle your money, change the way you handle your money. I'm not saying that changing the way you handle your money is the only way to repent and turn toward God. I'm just saying in this particular account of Luke, that's the only thing that John the Baptist was talking about. And the thing I really want to focus on is just this last phrase right here. He says to them, be satisfied with your wages. And that's a, that's a, I think that's a powerful little sentence because this is what that communicates to me. That it must be possible to be content with what God has provided for you. Like the fact that John the Baptist tells them to do it makes me think it can be done. The fact that the, fact that the scriptures command it, I think that that implies it's possible. Like we... We could be satisfied with your wages. He said be satisfied with your wages because that's something we could do. So let's go and see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. This is our second passage and final passage for the morning. Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 14. It's five verses. It's one paragraph. I'll just read it to you and then I'll go back and explain it. Paul, speaking to the Philippians or writing to the Philippians, says... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be, what's the word? Content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and I know how to have a lot. And in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. That word hardship is going to matter in just a little bit. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippians here. He's writing to them about our topic, right? In fact, he says something in this paragraph that is remarkable. He says in verse 12, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. That's what he claims. He claims to know the secret of contentment. Now, I think if you were living your life and someone were to say, I know the secret of contentment, wouldn't you be interested in what they have to say? 
Yeah, so just, just in general, if somebody says, I've learned the secret of being content, that's something that's worth listening to. But in this case, it's really worth listening to when you factor in the situation he was in when he said these words or when he wrote these words. It's kind of like this. You know how some words, they're powerful, but then they're more powerful depending on who says them and in what situation? So if you talk to like a healthy 13-year-old boy, and, he, and if he were to say, um, I'm not afraid to die, okay, those words, I'm not afraid to die, well, that, that's cool and that's powerful, but that's not uncommon. Like most healthy 13-year-old boys are not afraid to die. They, they, death feels like something that's just way, way far away that's probably never going to happen to them. But if a 50-year-old man with inoperable brain cancer says, I'm not afraid to die, now all of a sudden I'm listening. Because that's, that, that's an unusual situation. You're not afraid to die because it might be right around the corner for you. And I want you to understand with this situation, we've got someone here saying, I've learned the secret of being content. And this guy is not, as he writes this, he is not sitting by a pool drinking a margarita saying, I've learned the secret of being content. You know where he is? He's in prison, okay? He's in some sort of imprisonment. We don't know all the details of it. In Philippians chapter 1, he mentions that he's in chains. He might be in a dungeon. He might be under house arrest because one time they locked him in a house in Rome. But he's in some, he's locked in some room somewhere against his will. And not only is he imprisoned, he is unjustly imprisoned. Can you imagine going to jail? And can you imagine going to jail for something you did not do? Can you imagine going to jail for something that wasn't even illegal, right? So here he is, and he's in a situation where he hasn't done anything wrong. All he has done is obey God. He's done the right thing. He is imprisoned. And it is in that situation that he says, I've learned the secret of being content, right? In any and all circumstances. All circumstances? Like the terrible one you're in right now, Paul? Yes, all of them. So that's why I'm saying we need to really pay attention to what he says in this paragraph. So let's go up to verse 10 where it begins. Paul's writing to the Philippians and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. Now notice, he rejoices in who? The Lord. He, he is, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is connected to everything for him, right? I am happy, and I'm not just happy, I'm happy in the Lord. I am Jesus happy. Okay, because once again, you renewed your care for me. What does that mean that they renewed their care for him? Well, if you read the whole book of Philippians, you probably could figure out because they had sent him a care package, right? When he says, I'm glad you renewed your care for me, they had sent him a gift, probably money, while he was there in his imprisonment. So he is, this is kind of a thank you note, right? I am, I am happy that you all sent me the gift, right? I'm, I'm, I'm rejoice greatly that once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. You wanted to send me a gift a long time ago, but you weren't able to, but now you are, and now you did. Verse 11, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He's saying, you sent me this gift, I'm glad you did, but I wanted you to know I didn't, like, I didn't need it to be content. I just, like, I want, to, I want to say two things simultaneously. I want to say thank you for the gift, but I also want you to know I was content before it arrived. It's not like I was unhappy, then your gift came, oh, and now I've experienced happiness because I have more material possessions than I had before, right? Your stuff is not what made me content. I was content before the stuff came. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little... And I know how to have a lot, right? I know how to have a little, like, like what I had before your gift showed up, right? When I was just in this, wherever I am, stuck in this room. And I know how to have a lot, like what I have, which, I mean, I have a lot more now, now that your gift has arrived, right? I know both how to have a little and how to have a lot. 
And in, in any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry. Maybe he was hungrier before the gift arrived and not so worried about it after the gift arrived. But he says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Like he knows the secret of contentment regardless of how much stuff he has. So what is it? What's the secret of contentment? He says he knows it. What is it? And technically, he doesn't say, okay? He, there's not a verse in here that says, and the secret of contentment is, okay? But I think he tells it to us. Because right after he says, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Okay, now, now so he says, I've got this secret. And then, and then this is the, I, I'm able to be content no matter what. And then this is the next verse, verse 13. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret of contentment. That's how, how am I able to do it? How am I able to be okay whether I'm hungry or well-fed? Oh, I'm able to do it because Christ strengthens me, right? Christ is the secret of contentment. Now, this is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. This is one of the most quoted verses in the whole Bible. This is one of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible. This is the most rip it out of its context, don't let anybody know which paragraph it's found in verses in the whole Bible. This is, uh, there are only a few verses that are, I think, this, this bad. It's not the verse's fault. It's our fault. Um, there are only a few verses I know of that people take it and quote it all the time to mean almost the exact opposite of what it means. But, the, the, but we figured out a way with this one, okay? I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Most of the time I have heard this verse quoted in my life, it is usually about physical feats and athletic victories, Right? I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. I believe in Jesus, so I will win the championship game, right? I'm a champion and we will win. How do you know you'll win? I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's a verse. I got on a coffee mug. That's how I know I'm going to win. <laughs> That's what it is. You can go online and you can see the connections between this verse and athletics all over the place. They make Philippians 4.13 golf balls. They make Philippians 4.13 volleyball medallions. You can get a, a CrossFit weightlifting belt with Philippians 4.13 on it. It was $99 last time I looked, okay? Like literally, you can lift 1,000 pounds with a giant leather belt that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, okay? But if you take, if, if you just... It's funny, you don't even need a lot of context to know what the verse means. It's not like, well, now we've got to read all the paragraphs before. Let's just read half of the verse that comes before it. Can we put just, just the verse before Here it is. I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I can endure all miserable circumstances and still be content because of Jesus. So in other words, it's, it's not saying things will go well because I'm a champion in Christ. No, he's saying when things go horrible, I can be satisfied through Christ who gives me strength. We can be content because of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus is doing in us. You can be content because of what Jesus has done for you and what he does in you. Now, when I say what Jesus has done for us, let me explain to you the gospel, the good news, okay? At least the way I, I want to kind of, the angle at which I want to explain it related to this. We can be content because of what Jesus has done for us. One of the things that Jesus has done for us is that he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live in our place and then died on the cross, a terrible death, in our place for our sin. 
the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin, the wrath of God that John the Baptist was talking about when he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, right? Repent or you will be like a tree that's thrown into the fire. The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on Jesus in our place so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. That he died in our place and then rose again. And he has eternal life. Like he has it. And he gives it to whoever believes in him. Whoever repents and turns from their ways and trusts in him. And so one of the things that Jesus has done for us is he has saved us from hell. And I believe that our understanding of the fact that Jesus has saved us from hell can produce a significant amount of contentment in the here and now. I'll tell you when I, I think when I maybe first learned this, at least the most memorable time I learned it. I was listening to a cassette tape when I was a little kid. It was my mom's, but, and I was listening to it, and it was, it was a Mark Lowry cassette tape. And um, Mark Lowry, if you don't know who he is, it's funny, I think of him as a, a comedian, because he's a very funny guy, and my mom had this very funny cassette of one of his stand-up comedy acts. However, that's, I don't think that's going to be his legacy. 30 or 40 years from now, when he is long dead, he is going to be known as the man who wrote, Mary, Did You Know? Like, that's just what's going to happen. It does all of the stuff he's done in his life, no one's going to care. Like, 40 years from now, he's just going to be the guy that wrote, Mary, Did You Know? Um, and, and if you don't know, I mean, that's a pretty popular song. You hear it on radio all the time around Christmas time. Um, and so it's a, it's a serious Christmas carol. And it's kind of funny that I think about that, because the guy who wrote it is not actually a very serious guy. Um, and so he had this funny cassette tape that I used to listen to when I was a kid. And... There was a story that he told that was like sort of a serious story right in the middle of his funny set. I guess it was kind of like a Mary Did You Know moment right in the middle of his comedy act where he got serious for a second. And he talked about this group of people that he felt had mistreated him. And so he tells the story and he just felt like he was treated very unfairly. And so they, they mistreated him and he, you know, and he walked out the door and he walks, to, and I think he said in the story that he, he got into his car and he was just so frustrated and going, they shouldn't have treated me that way, right way. That was not fair. And then he thought to himself as he was in his car, like, this is not what I deserve. And he said that there was like a little, I think a little voice in his head that said, hell is what you deserve, Mark. And he realized that that's what he believes. Like, that, that's Christian doctrine. He realized, no, I am a sinner. And if God did not save me, Hell is what I deserve. Like that, I, the, the, the wages of my sin is, is eternal death separated from God. Like I don't deserve reward from God. I deserve his wrath. I deserve his eternal condemnation. That's what I deserve. And he's sitting there going, I'm not getting what I deserve. And God reminded him, no, you're not getting what you deserve. Right? He's thinking, oh, that's true. I, I'm not in hell right now. I'm driving a car. And I don't remember all the things he said on that tape, but I, I, one of the sentences I remember he said, pretty much word for word, I think he said it this way. He said, I don't care what you're going through, you can compare it to hell and smile. And that's not to minimize the suffering in this life. There are terrible, painful things that happen in this life. But it is, I think, important for us to realize that even in the midst of the terrible sufferings of this life and the times where we are so discontent that we need to realize even in those moments, we are not getting what we deserve. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, right, you, you're not in that moment getting what you deserve, and, and you never will. In fact, this is another quote that I wanted to read to you. I think this is a great one. I'd heard it before, and I found it this week. Listen to this. Earth is the closest that a non-Christian will ever get to heaven. Earth is the closest a Christian will ever get to hell. 
Have you ever thought about that before? I think both of those sentences are very important. Earth is the closest that a non-Christian will ever get to heaven. Earth is the closest a Christian will ever get to hell. So earth is the closest a non-Christian will ever get to heaven. This is important for you to know. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I feel like I need to tell you something, even if it like, potentially offends you, like John the Baptist called people brood of vipers. I want you to know that when you live this life and you go through difficult times and you're discontent and you're going, I don't like this, all right, and I'm frustrated, and that things in this world are not the way they ought to be. First of all, I agree with you. Things in this world are not the way they ought to be. And when you go through the sufferings of this life, you, just, you need to know this. If you don't bend the knee to Jesus, if you don't surrender to God, if you don't turn from your ways and turn to the true God, it's, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. I mean, it might temporarily get better in this life, but like your eternity is not going to be better than the thing you're suffering through now. It will be worse unless you turn to God. And then for those of you here who are believers in Jesus Christ, oh, this is so comforting. Earth is the closest a Christian will ever get to hell. And so we go through difficult times. In fact, sometimes we use the word hell, maybe a little flippantly, to describe sufferings in this life. Sometimes we go through things and we go, I have had a hell of a week, or this month has been a living hell, or this project is like hell, okay? And, and this is what I think is very important for you to know. That's the only hell you're ever going to experience if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll never experience the real one. And that knowledge, I think, is enough for us to be content for the time that we have. We have been saved from hell. We have been saved for heaven. Those of you who believe in Jesus, you will, your, etern- your destiny is to live in the new heaven and new earth with God forever in a world where, get this, there are no problems anymore. That there is coming a day that you're going to round the corner and satisfaction is really going to be there. Jesus is going to be there. And the race will be over. We can be content because of what Jesus did for us and because of what he does in us. And so I just explained to you what he did for us. And I I did that on purpose because I think that Paul assumed all of that. Everything that I just told you, which is like the gospel and the implications of the gospel, that's all stuff that Paul knew. That's all stuff that Paul believed. Like that was the foundation for all the things he was writing about. And so, of course, our, like Jesus' salvation that he provided for us in the past is connected to our current contentment. But if you look at the verse, and I want to look at it one more time, if you look at the verse, I think that's not precisely what Paul's talking about here. I don't think he's just talking about what Jesus did for us. He's talking about what Jesus does in us. Look what he says. He says, I am able, this is right after I've learned the secret of contentment, I am able to do all things through him. Now, this is interesting. Not him who saved me in the past. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me in the present. So, of course, the fact that Jesus strengthens us in the present is very related to what he has done in the past. But specifically, this verse, I think, is about his spirit. It's about the fact that God comes into our life and grants us the ability to be content no matter the circumstances. Yes, amen. So, I encourage you, and this is kind of just a summary of the sermon this morning, I encourage you to drop out of that materialism race that you are never going to finish anyway and worship God for who he is and for what he has done and ask him to strengthen you for contentment from the inside out. Let's pray. God, I ask that you, by your spirit, 
would make us into people who are satisfied with what you've provided for us, who trust in you, and have a contentment that comes from you. Not a temporary contentment, and then we die and go to hell, but a contentment that comes from you that lasts forever. And so we ask that from you in Jesus' name. Amen.